Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you under financial pressure? Do you struggle to make ends meet? Does it seem like we're often just a little bit short at the end of the month? Don't you sometimes feel like you're, you are a slave of the banks? Does this put pressure on you? Perhaps you're not in such circumstances right now, but debt and financial pressure can create a great amount of stress in our lives. Thus, the Bible often pair, compares our sin with a debt we owe God. It raises the question, do our sins put the same pressure on us as our financial debts? Do we struggle with our sins? Do they cause us grief and frustration? If not, why not? Isn't our inheritance slavery to sin much worse than any financial debt we might owe? In Lord's Day 5, we began speaking about our deliverance, having come to realization that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath. We learned that God's justice requires that payment be made for our sins. Last week, our focus was on the fact that we cannot pay and that no other creature can pay for us. It appears that we had come to a dead end, yet God found a way. Lord's Day 5 revealed to us the manner of our salvation. We need a special sort of mediator and deliverer, one who was a true and righteous man, and who, at the same time, true God. Having learned about the way of salvation, this afternoon we turn to see the person who saves us. He is indeed unique. Nowhere in this creation was there such a person, one who was truly man, so that he could pay for man's sin, one who was at the same God, same time God, so that he could bear the burden of God's wrath against sin. Yet the Lord God provided exactly this sort of mediator for us. We know him as our Redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ, for this is how God has revealed him to us in his word. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. Christ came into this world to save as our Redeemer. We'll see, first, what Christ came to redeem us from. Second, how we could serve as our Redeemer. And third, why we are to worship this Redeemer. When the Lord gave his people of Israel the land of Canaan as their inheritance, he did not want any of them to be slaves. The Lord had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He wanted them to live in the freedom he had provided for them as their Redeemer. The Lord wanted his people to experience his rich blessings in their lives. Not just the first generation, but also the children and grandchildren throughout the generations. God wanted them to experience his covenantal blessing so that they might thank and praise him in all their words and works. In many societies, you soon see the development of classes. There are the rich and the poor, those who have and those who don't. Often it happens 
that those who have buy up more and more property, and those who don't are forced to sell the little they have. In the end, you have groups of rich landowners who use the poor as slaves to further their own ends. Yet the Lord did not want any of his people to fall into slavery again. They had suffered more than 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The Lord had redeemed them with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. He wanted them to live as free people. Therefore, the Lord made special laws with respect to land ownership in Israel. Under Joshua, the Lord divided the land into areas belonging to each of the 12 tribes. Within each tribe, each family, and each whole household was apportioned a specific parcel of land. This land was given to this family in perpetuity. An example of this is seen in that Naboth rightly refused to sell his parcel of land to King Ahab. It was the inheritance of his fathers. He had no right to sell what God had given to his family as their land throughout the generations. Now it could happen that a man falls upon hard times. In such situations, what could he do? His only asset might be his land. Was he then not allowed to sell it, to get out of debt? No, he couldn't. The land didn't really belong to him. It belonged to the Lord God himself. The Lord retained the final ownership of the land. In today's terms, we could say that God owned it, but he gave it to his people as a long-term lease. The point is that God's people did not have the right to do whatever they felt like doing with the land. They were privileged to use it, but had to do so under the conditions of the covenant that, God, that the Lord had made with them. While the people were not allowed to buy and sell the land itself, the Lord did make provisions for times when people might be faced with financial difficulties. In such situations, God allowed them to sublease the land to fellow Israelites. The way that this worked was the land was valued according to a set price for each year that it was subleased. If a man faced financial hardship and needed some cash, he could sublease his land to another for the remaining number of years before the year of Jubilee. What this meant is that he would receive an amount of money in proportion to the number of remaining years till the year of Jubilee. If the lease on the land was worth $5,000 per year, and there were 20 years remaining until the year of Jubilee, he would receive $100,000. This money would have to support him until the land was returned to him in the year of Jubilee. God's law required that every 50 years, all the land be returned to the families to whom he had given it as an inheritance. Thus we see that the Lord made special provisions in his law that allowed those in need to sublease their land. How gracious God was in making special provisions for the redeeming of the poor and needy. If they were in financial strife, they were allowed to sublease their land, but only until the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year was set aside as a year of Jubilee. 
And this year, the trumpet was to be blown, and liberty was to be proclaimed throughout the land. And in that year, every family was allowed to return to the inheritance God had given to their family. All outstanding debts were wiped out. Everybody had the opportunity to make a new start. Thus the Lord provided redemption for his people. Imagine for a moment, beloved, the impact that these laws had on the poor, destitute Israelites. He might be in a position where he was forced to sell his land in order to pay his debt. He might be in a position where he and his family had to serve as slaves in the household of another. Such a person could easily lose hope. Living any, anywhere else other than Israel, he might despair. For what kind of future was there for him? No matter how hard he worked, he would never be able to secure either his own freedom or that of his children. He might as well give up and die. But not so in Israel, for the Lord God is a gracious God. He is a God of mercy. He has provided redemption for his people in the past, and he would do so again. Redemption was something codified in the law. Every 50th year, God granted a year of jubilee, a time when all those forced into slavery were set free, a time when all outstanding debts were wiped out, a time when each family's inheritance was returned to them, a time of rejoicing and celebration, a time of thanking and praising God for the deliverance he promised to those in need. Beloved, these laws, with respect to the law, to the year of Jubilee, foreshadowed something far greater than redemption of the poor and needy. Although the year of Jubilee provided relief from financial debt, it did not do anything more than that. The people of Israel's greater need was not met in this legislation. They could not be restored from slavery and returned to a position of favor, but only in a material way, not spiritually. For the laws about the year of Jubilee did not make provisions for the payment of their sins. And that is what was required of God's people to truly restore to God's favor. We see, beloved, we are like poor destitute man who owned much and had nothing with which to pay his debt. Our sins are an offense to the majesty of God Most High, and they keep piling up. Daily our debt grows. God requires that payment be made for our sins. His justice requires it. God will not grant a year of jubilee every 50th year and just wipe our slates clean. He demands that satisfaction be made for our sins. Someone's got to pay for them. The good news of salvation is that the year of Jubilee points towards a far greater redemption than the deliverance from financial debts. When Israel spoke to the when Isaiah spoke to the children of God, he prophesied of a special person who would come to provide redemption for Israel. In Isaiah 61 he wrote, "The spirit of the Lord God is upon me." because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who were bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Do you know what that year of favor is? It is a reference to the year of Jubilee. Do you know who it was that would proclaim this year? It was our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 4, we read about how Jesus stood up to read in the synagogue at Nazareth. He read the first verses of Isaiah 61. Then he sat down. And when the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, Jesus said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. He came to preach good tidings to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, to release the oppressed. Do you know what that good news was? What that release from oppression consisted of? Do you know the kind of freedom Christ provided? He came to make payment for our sins, to clear that great debt that each of us incurred before the throne of God. Christ came to redeem us from our sins so that we might live joyous and thankful lives in communion with our God. Beloved, we've got something to be really happy about. Imagine that you were in the first year of paying off the mortgage on your house and someone came along and paid off the balance of your mortgage together with all the other loans you've gotten outstanding at the bank. How happy would you be? Well, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done much more than that. He has made the payment that we could not make. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Certainly, we've got a lot to be thankful for in the redemption that Christ Jesus, our Lord, provided for us. In our first point, we've seen what Christ came to redeem us from. In our second point, we'll see how he could serve as our redeemer. In our society today, you can get things made according to your order. Think, for example, of a kitchen. If you're building a house, you can get a cabinet maker to build you a kitchen. It's got to fit such and such specifications. If the cabinet maker builds you a cabinet too big, they will not fit in your kitchen. If they're too small, they will leave behind an awkward, empty space. Now, with the kitchen cabinet, you've got some leeway. If they are a quarter of an inch out, you'll probably get away with it. But there are things in life that have got to be made exactly according to the specifications. Imagine that for some reason you needed an artificial limb from just above the knee down. If it didn't fit precisely onto your leg, it will cause you great discomfort. If it's a quarter inch out of length, you will have difficult walking on it. It's got to fit correctly, otherwise it cannot do the job. My point with these two examples is that our Redeemer, 
Christ was precisely qualified to do the job. We needed a mediator and a deliverer of a special kind to redeem us from our sins. He had to be true man. He had to be a righteous man. And at the same time, he had to be true God. If he did not meet these qualifications, he would be unable to save us. Now, saviors of this kind are not readily available in this world. Yet when it appears that there is no one to do the job, God provided a redeemer for us. Jesus Christ is the only one who is qualified to be our mediator. In him, we see the wonderful counsel and plan of God's coming to fulfillment. For from before the foundation of the world, God has ordained that his son would serve as our redeemer. He has appointed him as our mediator and deliverer. God qualified him for this task by allowing him to take on our human flesh so that he could be a true and righteous man as well as true God. Beloved, for Christ to serve as our mediator, he had to be true man. The reason for this is that only a man could pay for man's sin. God's justice is such that he will not allow another creature to pay for man's sin. It was man who originally sinned in paradise, and so our just God requires that a man pay for our sins. Up front, this does not appear to be a difficult requirement to fulfill. The world is full of people, so perhaps it would be possible for one of them to step forward and to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That way, you'd have a man paying for man's sin. Yet there was a snag. For a man to pay for our sins, he would have to be righteous and holy. He would have to be perfect. If he was not, he would not be able to pay for his own sins, never mind the sins of others. We see a good example of this in the life of Moses. When Israel sinned at Mount Horeb with the golden calf, Moses went up on the mountain to mediate for the people. He pleaded with the Lord to be gracious to his people and to forgive their sins. Moses even offered to have his name blotted out of the book of life if only God would grant grace to his people. Yet God refused to hear of it. Although Moses is referred to in Scripture as the man of God, he was not without sin. He could not make payment for God. He could not make payment that God required. One who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. There's one further qualification that anyone wishes to serve as our Redeemer had to fulfill. Not only did he have to be a true and righteous man, he also had to be a true God. The only way for the gap between God and us to be bridged was for the mediator to make a full payment for our sins. That's the only way in which we could be restored to God's favor. In order to make that payment, our Redeemer had to be God so that he could bear the burden of God's wrath against sin and deliver us from it. Bearing God's wrath involves suffering the punishment for sin. It involved the most 
severe punishment imaginable, suffering the everlasting punishment of body and soul. It involved being totally rejected by God, being cut off from His love and grace. This is a burden that is too heavy for a mere man to carry. We will wilt under the pressure that is being handed over to Satan and his hellish agony. We do not have anything, and I mean anything to escape from. Thus we see that our Redeemer had to be a true and righteous man. He also had to be true God in order to be able to save us from our sins. In Philippians 2, Paul writes about how Jesus Christ came into the world to serve as our Redeemer. Paul notes that Christ was in his very nature God. Yet that did not stop our Lord from humbling himself. Christ willingly gave up his divine prerogatives. He laid aside his heavenly glory and majesty. He took on the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of men. He assumed our human nature. He became exactly like us, except that he was without sin. Christ did this so that he could serve as our Redeemer. In him, and only in him, do we find the qualifications necessary to secure our redemption. This brings us to our final point. In it, we'll see why we are to worship our Redeemer. In Philippians 2, Paul not only explains how Christ had the qualifications for serving as our Redeemer, he also tells us what Christ did for us. Paul says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is in that act that our Lord made the payment required for us as a true and righteous man. He bore the wrath of God against all our sins. He suffered the agony and torment of hell during the hours of darkness on the cross. That is why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, beloved, Christ has paid the full price for our sins, the price required to deliver us from them, the price required to restore us to God's favor. In him, the years of jubilee find its fulfillment. In him, the acceptable year of the Lord has come. Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and death and hell. He has restored us to righteousness and life. Already now we may live in communion with God. In the life to come, God will dwell with us on the new heavens and the new earth. Do you know what God's response was to that awesome work of redemption accomplished by his Son? Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has glorified his Son. He has set him at his right hand. He has given him authority and dominion 
over all things. Do you know what our response should be to the glorious salvation work of Christ our Savior? We are to bow down before him in reverence and awe, to adore him for his mighty work of redemption on our behalf, to shout forth his name as the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, the one who has paid the price for our sins, the one who has restored us to God's favor. That's why we are to worship him. Amen.